Welcome to everyone who's listening, uh, wherever you are. Um, and um, we're going to try and bring you some information that you don't get anywhere else. Today I want to talk to you in particular about certain conversations that you may want to be sure to have with your loved ones. Um, but first... This program is sponsored by my law office, Wills and Trusts, LLC, where the only kind of law we do is we prepare wills, trusts, power of attorneys, advanced medical directives. We look at deeds, make changes if need be, and do our best to help you secure, protect, preserve, and pass on your legacies. Uh, so if you or someone you know needs a will, if someone you know would like a trust or assistance in administering an estate, give us a call at 240-638-2828. 240-638-2828. That number is monitored uh, weekly, um, daily, rather. We are still working remotely, but uh, we do Try to return calls as quickly as possible. Uh, if you are interested in a consultation, we'd like to send you a client information form to fill out. When it's ready to be returned, you can either return it by mail or you can return it by email. Uh, let me know and we'll send you a secure email link that will allow you to return the information and then schedule a video conference. I do that because it makes it so much easier and much more productive when I talk to you if I know, you know, are you married? Are you single? Do you have children? Do you have properties? What kind of insurance do you have? What are your wishes? What are your concerns? Because there's a place on there for you to tell me if you have particular concerns. Do you have a sick parent? Do you have a sick spouse? Do you have a child that has special needs? Do you want to make sure to benefit your church? Maybe you're not married. Maybe you don't have children. Maybe you're not quite sure what you want to do with your property because there are quite a few people like that. They don't have children. They're not married. And they may or may not be very close or they may or may not feel that they're parents or their their not parents but their family uh, are the appropriate or best beneficiaries of their assets and so I try to find out what are you passionate about what do you want to support because you all have the opportunity everyone does but you have a particular opportunity to benefit schools churches hospitals causes that are important. In fact, that's how many of the great organizations that, like John Hopkins um, hospitals all over the country, um, uh, Harvard University, HBCUs, Hampton University, um, Howard, uh, Fisk, a lot of these schools exist because of legacies that were left to them by people in their wills and in their trusts. So give us a call, 240-638-2828. It's the only thing that we do, and we'll be glad to work with you. Law is powerful. It can help you. 
or it can hurt you. It impacts everything that you do. What you don't know about the law definitely hurts you. What you do know empowers you. So each week, this program, Law Talk with Ethel Mitchell, aims to empower you by bringing your professionals to enlighten and inform you. While I'm on the air, and I will be on until 10 o'clock today, uh, call now. Call early, 1-800-450-7876, 1-800-450-7876, and I'll be glad to do my best to answer your questions and explain how these things work, what the law provides, how you can arrange certain things and so forth. Uh, but remember what I do say on the program or what's on the website are, is strictly for informational purposes only. There's no attorney-client relationship established by anything on the website or anything that I even say on the air because everybody's situation is different. And when we talk individually, when I look at the facts of your situation, then I can give you particular advice. But nevertheless, call. There are two websites that I have that you're welcome. In fact, they're there for your use. One is willsandtrust.net, and that's plural, willsandtrust.net. It has a lot of good information on there. It really does about what's a will, what's a trust, how they work, examples of how you use a power of attorney, a medical directive, what they're good for, what's a probate, how does that work? So go to willsandtrust.net. It's W-I-L-L-S-A-N-D-T-R-U-S-T-S dot N-E-T. At any time, and you can learn a lot about the things that I talk about every day. It's a very good resource. People, it's an old website, but up to last week, uh, someone told me that they had been there, and it was really very helpful in explaining many of the things that you need to know. Of course, this program, Law Talk with Ethel Mitchell dot com, has its own website with pictures and links to many of the guests that have been on the program. So be sure to check that out as well. So let's get started. Uh, As I say every week, and it's so very important, do not underestimate the importance of having the three primary documents. Everybody, every adult needs to have a last will and testament, a power of attorney, an advanced medical directive, a last will and testament, a power of attorney, and an advanced medical directive, and perhaps a trust. Not everybody needs a trust, but a trust is extremely helpful if you want privacy, if you want to avoid probate, if you have minor children or dependent heirs, or you just want to control the preservation and distribution of your legacy over a period of time, a trust could well be indicated for you. 
make sure you go to a lawyer that does this kind of work in the state where you live. Each state has slightly different laws. And so you want to use a lawyer in the state where you live. If you're in, I know people listen to me in Georgia, in Mississippi, in Texas, sometimes overseas, uh, in England, in Germany. I've had calls from there. Uh, if so, go to a lawyer where you live. If you live in the United States, the states control this process. In other words, the law is usually controlled by the state. And by that, I mean, it, it isn't maybe control is not the right word, but your will, your probate, that whole process, the ownership of property is governed by the law of the state in which you live. And so you want a lawyer who is admitted to practice and practicing law in the state where you live to do these documents for you or to review the documents if you have moved from somewhere else. That being said, please know that in the United States at least, the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution provides that if you signed, let's say, a will in Georgia or in Maryland and you moved to Florida, that will will be honored in Florida as well, as long as it was valid when you signed it in Maryland or whatever state it was it was signed in. Uh, as a legal matter, wherever you are, your documents should be honored. That being said, however, each state can get a little difficult. And by that, I mean... For example, I had this to happen recently, a power of attorney was used to sign a deed for property in Washington, D.C. I don't know where the lawyer was from who prepared the power of attorney years ago for the person, but it did not have the language at the top that Washington, D.C. wants to have on its deeds. I mean, on its power of attorneys when it's used for recording deeds. And the recorder of deeds in Washington, D.C. would not accept the power of attorney as being valid to execute that deed, or rather to record that deed using that power of attorney. So it's important. It's important to know and to have the proper documents, and to update them from time to time. So that being said, uh, and if you have questions, call in right now at 24, I'm sorry, 1-800-450-7876, So that being said, I thought today I would talk about important conversations that you would like to or you should consider having if you are of a certain age and are expected to take care of someone. So let me set the stage. This actually happened 
uh, last week with a client of mine. Uh, and, and even though it was a parent and child situation, it could just as easily be an aunt and uncle, a niece and nephew situation. It could be a godmother, godchild situation. But in any event, let's say you are in your 40s or 50s and your parents are in their 70s or 80s or 90s, okay? And you know that you are expected to care for them, not necessarily financially, but just to be there if and when they need you. And maybe it's already started to happen where uh, your mother is unable to do certain things that she was accustomed to doing, or it's more difficult for your father to do certain things. I'm not talking, though, however, about physical care so much, although that's part of it, as legally. What are the kinds of things that you need to know? Because this is happening all over the country right now. And my client's daughter said to me, Ethel, my my friends and I are having, I see my friends going through this because um, their parents in some instances have died. And in other instances, their parents are uh, older uh, or, or, or they don't, they don't know what to do. In other words, they're, they're, the 40- and 50-year-olds are in a quandary because they don't know what to do. They don't know what they can do. They don't know where bank accounts are. They don't know what what are they supposed to do and how how does it happen? How are they able to take care of of their loved ones in the best possible way? So if you are in this sandwich generation, I call it, and let me set the stage, you already have your own home. Uh, maybe with a mortgage, but it's still yours, okay? You may well have your own children that you're busy raising and you're working, okay? You've got your own bills. Uh, You've got your own life. But you know and you love your parents and you want to be there for them. You want to make sure, what happens if mother falls? What what can I do? How do I, how do I navigate this? And on the other side, the parents, you should be thinking as much as you want to stay independent, uh, as much as you don't want to be a burden on your children, you might also be worried about, oh, my God, what's going to happen um, uh, to me if I am alone or if I'm with my spouse, but my spouse is sick? You know, let me suggest some conversations or some specific things that you may want to share with each other. And you could do this with or without a lawyer. Uh, I I did it last week, and I realized that I may well recommend it to more clients because it was very, very enlightening for um, particularly the child, uh, the adult child, uh, because this is clearly something that uh, they have seen their friends go through, Already one parent is sick, um, and, and, and so I want to use this sort of as an example that anyone listening might be able to learn or take some ideas from as I try to do each week. So, for, so number one, 
you should try it. And, and again, you must be gentle when you do this. Okay, this should be a loving conversation. It may not be appropriate in every circumstance. If you don't trust your child, don't give your child your power of attorney. Okay, please, I don't care how much you love them. If they spend their money unwisely, if they have a drinking or drug problem or gambling problem, if they have friends who or spouses who unduly influence them, do not have this conversation with them. Have the conversation with the person that you trust, and hopefully you have already gone to a lawyer and you've gotten your power of attorney done, your medical directive, and your will done, okay? And if so, if you haven't, do it, okay? And if you have, then you should be having this conversation with the person that you've named to be your agent, sometimes called attorney in fact, in the power of attorney. You should have this conversation with the person that you've named to be the personal representative in your will or the successor trustee in your trust, if you have a trust, okay? You're listening to Law Talk with Ethel Mitchell. I'm your host, Attorney Ethel Mitchell. And I want to have, I want to give you some specific conversations and or facts that you need to know about the one, the person or persons that you are expected to care for. So let's start here. Let's start with where do they do their banking? Not just maybe my money is in Bank of America, but whose name is on the account? If you're lucky enough to have both parents alive, are both are all of your accounts joint accounts? Okay, you need to know that so that you know if mom gets sick, dad can sign her checks. If dad gets sick, mom can sign her checks. That's important information to know. If you only have one parent or there's only one person that you uh, are going to be responsible for, they're alone already by this time, then you either want to have a trust done for them where you are the successor trustee. You want to have you want to have access to whatever account there is if and when, if they become incapacitated, let me say it like that, and when they die. And and, and I, I want I want you to carefully understand, I'm trying to be careful in explaining the difference. If you are expected to use their money to pay for their medical care, then they should put your name on as a power of attorney, perhaps first, so that, and you could even go to the bank with them now that the banks are open and you can do that. Banks have power of attorney forms. The simplest thing is just go to the bank together and say, I want to put my name on as my mother's power of attorney or my father's power of attorney. What that does is, it gives you access to the money to care for them with, but they still can't, their money is not exposed to your creditors. Let me repeat that. The power of attorney empowers someone 
to sign on your bank account, take care of your financial business for you. They are a fiduciary, meaning that they can only use their money, your money, for you. And they can go to jail if they try and steal your money, okay? That's, that's fraud. That's embezzlement. But they are empowered to use that money for you. And as a power of attorney, their creditors can't get to your money. So that's a big, big distinction between if you put their name on their bank account as a co-owner, then their creditors can get to your money. This is an important distinction I want you to understand. Let's get an example. Mr. Jones, I like Mr. Robert Jones. Okay, let's keep stick with Mr. Robert Jones. And to keep it simple, Mr. Robert Jones is, uh, in this example, uh, uh, um, has Mr. Edward Jones as his son, and he wants to put, he wants his son to be able to sign on his checking account if he gets sick. But he doesn't want, he doesn't totally like the way, you know, his son may have some creditors, they have some child support bills or something like that. He, you know, he doesn't want his Mr. Edward Jones's creditors to be able to get to Mr. Robert Jones's money. So in that case, they go to the bank together and they only sign a power of attorney form, power of attorney form, okay? Get a copy of it as well so you can prove it to a bank if, you, if Mr. Edward Jones goes in to sign a check and for whatever reason the bank doesn't honor it or they give you trouble with it, uh, that's the last you want to be able to prove in writing hard copy that your your father or your mother signed the document at the bank and so they've got to give that to you. Or if you're using a power of attorney that was done for you by a lawyer, you want a copy of that as well, okay? Um, that allows the son, in my example, to have access to the money, to pay for medical bills, to pay for house rent to pay for electricity, mortgage, whatever bills to use that money for his father's benefit. So in that instance, you need to always know where your parents' bank statements are, where your parents' bank accounts are. If it's a couple, for example, both parties, it's important to know, are they on each other's checking accounts? A lot of times, couples have individual accounts. That's how they stay together because they keep their money separate, okay? And that's fine. But in that instance, if you are, let's say, Miss Bertha Jones is the mother. She ain't going to put Mr. Robert Jones on her bank account, okay? She's been married to him for 50 years. They manage money differently, okay? And so they, they, they've been through that fight, you know, so... They got their stuff set up the way it works for them. Recommend to your mother, though, Miss Bertha Jones, mother, may, let me let me be on one of your accounts as your power of attorney at least, at least as your power of attorney. Now there is one drawback that I do want to explain to you. I know I've got to go to break shortly, so I want you to keep listening, but. 
there is one drawback to only being on as the power of attorney. Okay? It has a benefit. Like everything in law, there's a benefit that gives you access to the money for the benefit of your parent. But the drawback is that it ends when your parent dies. So how do you deal with that? You can be both power of attorney and you can be beneficiary on the account. Okay, those are two different things. The payable on death beneficiary is the person that gets the money when the person dies. And your parent, let's say your parent has three three children and they want all three to share, but they may not necessarily want all three on their bank account, you know, managing their money. So what you can do is name the one that you want to help manage the money as your power of attorney and then name all three as a beneficiary to receive the money when you die. You're listening to Law Talk with Ethel Mitchell. I'm your host, Attorney Ethel Mitchell. When I come back after break, though, I do want to tell you uh, another situation that's very, very important that you may want to handle slightly differently, and that is who's going to bury you? Where does the money come from to bury you with? Because that is a major problem that needs to be resolved before your parents die. It's this is really important stuff. And once it's done, it's done. You've got it like you want. You can always change it, but please put something in place, even if it's not totally, totally everything you want. I was telling a client uh this week, you know, she's single, she doesn't have children, she's not married, but she owns a couple houses. And I'm like, you need a will at the very least. You don't have to do a whole big trust if you're not sure right now, but at the very least, have a will. If you know, if 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 I mean, give it to scholarships for for students at at schools. Uh, uh, you know, help to fund your church if you're active in your church. Give to organizations like Sister Mentors or uh, Omegas or you know Kappas or they all have foundations that do amazing work. St. Jude, Howard University Hospital, Toppen State. There's so many worthy causes that will make a huge difference in people's lives. And you can do that almost just with a stroke of a pen, you know, by having a properly drawn up and properly executed and witnessed will. Uh, It's worth it to get it done right. And I'm not Anyway, I, I don't like these online stuff. I don't like forms because I've, I've had people come to me after somebody dies with a form that was done and it wasn't done right. And then you got to spend thousands of dollars trying to undo it if you can. And sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Okay. Anyway, so back to the area that I started out with today, and that is conversations that I I recommend that if you are the in the generation that is going to be expected to care for someone, or you are of a generation that will need care. And I posited that 
is let's say you're in your late 40s, early 50s, your parents are in their 70s and their 80s or 90s, and you know that even though you have your children, your bills, your house, your husband, your wife, all your other things going on, you also know that you've got to be able to take care of your parents as well, and you want to do that as best you can. So I recommend that you have this conversation, and you can have it with their lawyer if your parents agree to it. Okay, now remember, if I'm the lawyer for the parents, your parents have got to agree to this conversation because that's private, personal lawyer-client relationship. But if your parents agree, I would like them to be on the call, on the video with us together. And together I can explain to you what happens, how to best prepare. So during the first part of the program, we talked about the fact that you need to know where all bank accounts are, whose names are on the bank accounts. Are they jointly held by both your parents? Are they, do they each have, do they have individual accounts? What banks are they at? And ideally it's good to have a statement, even if you mark out the account number and how much is in the account, at least have a statement from each of the accounts that your parents may have. And again, parents only do this if you're comfortable sharing this information with your your children. And I'm using parent-child, but it could easily be godmother, godchild, niece, nephew, it does, you know, uncle, whatever the relationship is, okay? It might be, and the reason for doing this is because when somebody dies, their bank accounts are often frozen. You can't get any money anymore. Even while they're alive, if you don't have a power of attorney on their bank account, you can't write checks for them. So as has has happened, people have called me up and said, Ms. Mitchell, my aunt had a stroke. And what happens is once you get sick, unfortunately, sometimes it continues. So in this particular case, I'll never forget it. The the aunt had had a stroke, a, a big one, and then kept having many strokes that further you know, hurt her. And so she was not competent anymore to sign the power of attorney. And her nieces were desperately trying to help her. They knew she had long-term care insurance, but the insurance agent wouldn't talk to them because she had never signed the power of attorney. So these documents that I talk about are really important. So get, get them to do power of attorney, have them give, share a copy of the power of attorney with you uh, with permission from my client, the parents. I will, I will send electronic copies because we scan everything now to the, the child or to the children, whoever you tell me you give me permission to do, okay? At least with the power of attorney, you can, insurance companies will talk to you. Uh, the medical directive, the doctors will talk to you about what what their medical condition is, what kind of medicine they need, what kind of care they need. And that can really be a life or death thing where you know what is needed because sometimes they can't tell you or sometimes they won't tell you, okay? Uh, but it's important to know these things. Know 
try to know who, if they have brokerage accounts, try to get to know who the broker is so that if there is, if they have already introduced you to the broker, the broker will be much more comfortable sharing things with you. If they've given a power of attorney to their broker, still recognizing that it's solely for their care. Okay, this is only to be used when you totally trust your child or the person that you've given this power to. Not to be used if there's any question about their veracity at all or their trustworthiness at all. Okay? But now let's get to how do you bury a person? Where does the money come from? Because let me tell you what happens. I don't know how banks know. I don't know how Social Security knows. But some kind of way, banks and Social Security companies and so on like that know when somebody dies quite often. I, I don't know how, the, how it happens. I really don't. But what happens once a bank knows that someone is dead, and there's no other name on that bank account, they freeze the bank account. They shut down the online access. Now, sometimes the online access doesn't get shut down, but often they do. They shut down the online access, and they freeze the bank account. And so mother may have left $10,000 in her bank account to bury her with, but you can't get to it. You can't get to it. So what do you do? Pay for it with your own money. That's one option. Bury it with your own money and hope that, you know, you are named as the personal representative on the estate and that you can get that money back because you're supposed to, but it's going to be costing money to go to court. More and more people are in a situation where they have loved ones who are sick and they're doing their best to take care of them and to provide for them. And then if and when they die, they then have to finance or pay for some kind of way their burial. And um, there are different ways in which to do this. I'd recommend it that you, number one, find out where are your parents' uh, bank accounts at. If possible, ask them whose names are on their accounts. You know, you, this must be discreet because you must respect them and their privacy. But you need to know these things because that's the kind of stuff you need to know, okay? So now, suppose that uh, they say to you, baby, uh, just use my insurance to bury me with. You say, okay, fine. But the lawyer said, and you can blame me for this, I need a copy of your uh, beneficiary designation on your insurance policy, because that's what governs who's who's the, the 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 distribution of the policy. So let me explain how this happens. It is quite common in the Washington D.C. area when somebody dies that persons who worked, especially if you work for the government, but anyone who died with an insurance policy will go to the funeral home and say, mother had insurance, dad had insurance, and we're going to use that insurance to bury her with. Now, I'm talking about regular life insurance now. Some funeral homes actually 
have their own policies that are used to bury people with, and you buy the policy. And so when the person dies, the insurance from that funeral home, which they have a copy of already in their records, will be used to pay for their funeral, the services, and sometimes even the plot. But and if and if you've made that arrangement, then please do be sure to get a copy of that and put that copy of that insurance policy or that contract. Sometimes people will go to a nurse a funeral home and pay for their their everything but the opening and closing. They have a contract for that. They also have, and there's a written contract for a burial plot at a cemetery. You need to have copies of those contracts in order to be able to prove, here's the plot, here's the contract that my mother signed 20-odd years ago and paid you for, you know, the plot, lot, in such and such a place in your burial. Here's the contract that my parents signed or paid for to uh, take care of her funeral expenses. Now, let's say you don't have that, but your parent did say to you, use the insurance baby. So go to OPM, all right, while they're alive, while they're alive. You can contact OPM. You can call them. <clears throat> you can look them up online and get the phone number. Um, and they will require your parent to agree to this, okay? But tell them that what you want is a copy of the beneficiary designation that was signed by your parent or by whoever the, the deceased person or whoever has the insurance. If they don't have the written copy of it, and don't spend months trying to find it. If you can't find it, just get another copy of it. If they can't find it or they're taking too long, go online, print out the beneficiary designation form, okay? If it's government insurance, Almost always, it's called fig. We call it figly. F e g, f e g l i c. Federal Employee Group Life Insurance. Federal Employee Group Life Insurance. F e g l i c. You can go online. You can print out the form. Your parent can fill it out again, or you can fill it out for them. You know, and it, it, you have to give the name, address of the of the beneficiary and the percentage it's signed it's witnessed not by one of the beneficiaries okay keep a copy of it and then mail it in to OPM i recommend to my clients that they mail it in with registered mail return receipt requested so you have some kind of proof that you mailed it in and ask them to send you a copy of it back so you know for sure that they've got it and it's on their record. At that point, when the person dies, you take that to the, the funeral home. The funeral home will insist that everybody who's named as a beneficiary on that policy sign their contract. In other words, not the contract for funeral services, but sign what's called the assignment of proceeds, okay, or words to that effect. Basically, let's say if Mr. Jones had three children and he named all three of his children to receive 
his life insurance from Fig League, okay, then all three of those children whose names are on the beneficiary form will have to sign agreeing that the payment for the funeral will have to come from the insurance policy first. So let's be real here. If you've got a brother or a sister, a sibling, who's not going to cooperate, they're not going to cooperate. Or maybe, God forbid, they're not in a position where they can sign. They may be overseas. They may be in jail. They may be incompetent themselves. Then please ask your parent to be realistic. Know that they love them. But if this insurance money is supposed to pay for their burial, then they need to redo the insurance premium, I mean, a beneficiary, and take their name off of the policy as a beneficiary, okay? Because they've got to sign. The insurance company is not going to pay out the money to anybody, to, I'm sorry, to, to the funeral home if everybody doesn't agree to it. And I have had cases where one of the children just won't sign it. They want the money. They don't care about burying their parents. All right? And so that's, that's important. That's important. You're listening to Law Talk with Ethel Mitchell. I'm your host, Attorney Ethel Mitchell. This program is brought to you by my law office, Wills and Trust. LLC, definitely trust them. Don't give nobody your power of attorney if you don't trust them, okay? But you need to name them so that somebody else can take care of your financial affairs if you get sick. And at some point, you need to give them a copy of that document. And if you expect them to do it, they need to have a copy of the power of attorney. The power of attorney can be written so it's only effective if they become or if you become incapacitated and they've got to get two doctors to certify to that and the companies insist on that by the way i've had quite a few people contact me and say miss mitchell the doctors don't want to sign it and they won't the company won't give it won't, won't accept it call immediately if the loved one that you are if, if you find yourself getting sick or where you might become incapacitated Let's change the power of attorney to being effective immediately without having to have any kind of medical information. We can change it as long as the person whose power it is is still competent to sign it, okay? And if it doesn't matter to you whether you're sick or not, you are you trust this person to act for you, then use it, okay? Go on and have, have the power so that it is effective immediately, all right? Then have the medical directive so they can get information about your medical care. Talk to the doctors. Go to the pharmacist and so on. That's another thing. You need to know who the doctors of your parents are. You need to know where do they get their medicine. What pharmacy do they use? If your mother has a stroke or something and she can't tell you this, this is really important information. I give my clients a, a form. I don't keep it. I just give it to them, fill it out, um, give it to your, your, your child or whoever your agent is going to be. And on it, it says, 
name and address and phone number of your primary care physician. Name, address, phone number of any specialist. Maybe you have a cardiologist. Maybe you have an arthritis doctor. Maybe you have a doctor for whatever. Put their name, their address, and their phone numbers down and give a copy of it to your your child or to whoever is going to be taking care of you. Which exactly the address as well as the name of the pharmacy where your medicine where you your medicine is filled at. Okay? Uh, make sure that person has a copy of your medical directive because the pharmacy may say, I don't know who you are. I can't tell you who if if Mr. Jones has his medicine picked up here. I certainly can't even give you the medicine. So the power of attorney and the medical directive is what you use for those kinds of things. Secondly, when I would, not, I don't know what number it is, but it's in, this is another thing that's very, very important. You should know the healthcare nurses and providers, physical therapists that go into your parents' houses. You should eyeball them. You need to look at them. You need to know who they are. You need to know what agency they come from, okay? You need to vet the agency to make sure how do they choose these people. Some agencies are actually bonded where they bond their people. I don't know if that's common or not, but I have heard of it. But you need to know who's coming into your parents' home. If they live alone or if they are you know, without somebody to keep an eye on these people that come into their home, strongly recommend to your parents, and remember I'm using that term generically, strongly recommend that their checkbooks, their credit cards, and their financial information not be kept in the home. Not be kept in the home. I have had Terrible situations occur where and most health aides are angels. They are truly angels. They do God's work. They they so please don't think that I'm bad mouthing them because they are angels. They do the kind of work that none of us are able to do. They handle our loved ones with care and with professionalism. They're warm, they're loved, they they, they provide companionship that we can't do because we off working or taking care of our own families and so on. So I'm not trying to cast doubt on the, 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 the reality of, or the, the integrity of 99% of healthcare workers, but there is that 1% that are thieves. And so if your loved one is in a situation where they have, people coming into the home that you may or may not know, even if you know them, okay, because they can smile in your face and still steal your money. I strongly recommend, of course, you have to get permission from your, your parent to do this. Strongly recommend that you remove checkbook, credit card, debit cards, uh, bank statements, insurance, any kind of financial information from the home or put it in a place that is locked and is not 
able to be accessed by these people. And tell your loved one, don't give them the combination. Don't tell them where it is. Okay, I've had a client where a health aide stole over $100,000 from her money, okay, from her bank account. And they slick. They take it in amounts that you don't notice. And this was going on for like three years, okay? Um, and ask permission to have access online to the bank statements so that you can watch what's going on. It's a credit card account. This person was taking money from or going to Nordstrom's or, you know, different places and charging up all kinds of clothing and stuff. And it was this lady lived alone, lived alone, and and did not um, – it was only when her niece uh, noticed it that they were able to stop it, and they charged the person with criminal uh, charges. But I don't know if she ever got any of her money back, you know, even with civil judgments against them. So be very, very careful. Be very, very careful um, if you live alone. That can become a serious problem, okay? You're listening to Law Talk with Ethel Mitchell. I'm your host, Attorney Ethel Mitchell. Um, I've been trying to give you practical information like I do each week. Make sure that you have in writing copies of bank statements, copies of the power of attorney, the medical directive, the will, know where the original will is. In fact, if you want to, take the original will with you. If you're going to be responsible, if you're named as a personal representative, your loved one lives alone and, you know, is becoming sick or something, and they want you to take care of things for them, you might want to ask for permission to be given the original last will and testament, because you're going to need that uh, when someone dies. Uh, same thing with the trust. You might want to have a copy of the trust. You know, the trust is not as important because you rarely go to court with the trust, but it certainly won't hurt to have it, okay? It won't hurt to have it. At the very least, have a copy of it, all right? Um, in some instances, when I deal with my clients and they they are alone, and by that I mean they don't have anybody that lives with them. They do have a child or a person who's going to be their successor trustee, going to be their power of attorney, going to be their personal representative or something like that. In some instances, we will scan and send copies of all of the documents to that person. In some instances, when the person is already sick or is being cared for, we actually make a separate uh, estate document book for them. Uh, in many instances, more and more, if the the loved one, I can think of one in particular we did recently where it was an aunt and a niece. Uh, the niece was taking care of the aunt. The aunt didn't have children of her own, and, and whether she did or not, this was the person that was there for her. And so when we finished doing her trust and so on, we made a, a book for the uh, niece who was doing everything. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, they decided that the niece would keep the originals. The book 
It's always been original and copies. I don't want you writing on the originals, okay? So we gave the, the niece the book with the originals in it, and we gave the aunt the, the book with the copies of everything in it. Uh, so, and then it's in order. So you don't have to worry about it. You've got everything you need. You've got arrangements that's been taken. If you if you're in the service, there's particular other documents that it's handy to have. It's very helpful to have. Uh, and when I come back after this last break, it's the last break of the day. I'll talk a little bit more about and, and try and summarize what I've been talking about today because these are really important things. And you want to just get them in order. And then it's done. So let me just summarize, okay? Number one, you need to know where the bank accounts of your parents are. Uh, You need to know uh, if and when uh, something happens to them, uh, whose names are on those bank accounts. If both are alive, are they joint accounts? So if one gets sick, you know the other one can sign checks. Uh, even if both names are on, you might recommend, or if it's a single one, you know, if they have individual accounts, you want to know, well, okay, um, uh, are they able to put your name down as a power of attorney at the very least? If you're an only child, many of my clients will put the child's name on their account, or there are only two children, put the name on their account as a co-owner. Which is another way to do it. It's an easy way to do it. Just understand that you are basically giving the money to the child while you are alive. Because the law says if somebody's name is on an account as an owner, they own all of it, they can take all of it, and their creditors can get to your money. So if you have any hesitation about that, don't do that, but put them on as a power of attorney, so they can pay things, they can pay bills, and then put them down as a beneficiary um, so that after your death, they'll be able to get the money. Payable on death beneficiary, however, does not help them when they're trying to pay for your funeral. Uh, When it comes to paying for your funeral, there's a catch-22 in there in that The funeral home is the one that gets the death certificate. And the death certificate has to be shown to the bank before they will pay it out. And sometimes there's a couple weeks lapse between even when they get it and they pay the money to you. So don't depend on that to be used to pay for the funeral. If you want, what sometimes people will do, they will put a special account aside put somebody else's name on it that will, is going to be in charge of the funeral, and they'll put the money that they think will be needed to bury them in in that account with someone else. And so even when they die, that other person who's going to pay for everything has access to that money. Another way to do it would be to do the insurance. We talked about that. Make sure that you have in your records a copy of the beneficiary designation that shows who are the beneficiaries of the account, of the insurance, because that is what is going to be required. Everybody on who's named as a beneficiary has to sign the insurance um, assignment that says the funeral home will 
get the money to pay for the service directly from the insurance company. And afterwards, the insurance company will send the beneficiaries whatever is left over. But everybody has to sign that. If you've got children who are in the service, who are overseas, in jail, uh, have substance abuse problems, are incompetent because of mental or physical reasons, or for any reason, just obstinacy, won't sign it, then you may want to change your beneficiary designations to make sure that the money to pay for your burial is going to be easily and quickly available and put that designation in writing in your documents, uh, where you keep your documents, okay? Uh, You want to be sure to have beneficiary designations and copies of them on all of your insurance policies, on all of your retirement accounts, on all of your bank accounts, if your beneficiaries are adults. And you don't have any hesitation about that. You don't have to have a trust to do that. If you have four grown children, two grown children, whatever it is, just name them. If you want it to go to your spouse, name your spouse, okay? Name your spouse as primary and maybe your children as contingent. That way you don't have to worry if your spouse dies the, 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 the before you. It's already said on your on your beneficiary designation. Well, okay, when I die, it's going to go automatically to my children. But they need to have that in writing because again, nobody will tell them anything once you die. Nobody will tell them anything. So that has to be in your records in writing. Okay, if make sure copies of your deeds are there. Let a lawyer look at the deeds. I've got sisters who are dying right now, and if somebody had come to me ahead of time, we could have either changed the deeds so it went joint tenants with rights of survivorship. So when one died, the survivors would have it. When the next one died, the survivor would have it. Whatever it was going to be, or at least have a will that said when one dies, who gets it, and so on. Now we've got to do probates for three different people. Because nobody looked at the deed while they were, you know, two or three years ago when everybody was in good health. At least nobody came to a lawyer with it to say, what's going to happen when somebody dies here? You know, these are our intentions. How can we fix this to make this work? And there's almost always usually something that we can do. So give us a call at Wills and Trust LLC. 240-638-2828, 240-638-2828. I'm Attorney Ethel Mitchell. It is the only kind of law that we do. If you're interested in a trust, a will, getting your documents in order, or reviewing the documents that you already have, uh, please give us a call at 240-638-2828. If you have questions about any of these things, put them together, write them down, think about them, have them someplace available so that when I'm on the air next week, uh, you can call in to 1-800-450-7876, ask them, and I'll do my best to answer. Uh, In the meantime, enjoy the holiday, stay safe, and I will be back next week. Okay. Okay. 